0: Good, well, thanks for coming along this evening to continue uh, our second chunk of the book of Exodus. And our passage this evening uh, is something of a quiet and contemplative interlude between two very dramatic events. First of all, the killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt and Israel leaving Egypt. And then uh, next week, we'll be looking at the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. But in our passage this evening, we'll see that Moses is passing on to uh, God's people God's instructions for how they should remember the Passover in generations to come. So let's read part of the section from chapter 13. And uh, this passage is going to show that there are three ways in which the Israelites were to remember the implications of the Passover and their redemption. From Egypt so chapter 13 uh, starting at verse 3 then Moses said to the people commemorate this day the day you came out of Egypt out of the land of slavery because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand the second thing to remember was this eat nothing but yeast today in the month of Aviv you are leaving When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. And down to verse 11. After the Lord brings you... After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors you are to give over to the Lord, the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, as we've been going uh, through the book of Exodus, We saw last week, well, we saw on previous occasions, how the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians. They were slaves with no rights, no purpose in life. God heard their cry and he sent Moses to deliver them from their oppression. Moses gave God's call to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in those famous words, let my people go. But Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let them go. And he was even prepared to see his economy ruined uh, and destroyed rather than humbling himself and releasing the Israelites from their oppression. And it required one final blow to break the stubbornness of Pharaoh. Last week, Jim led us through the Passover when a destroying angel passed through the land, bringing God's judgment and killing the firstborn son in every house. There was only one way to be saved from that judgment. It required a lamb to be killed and the blood of the lamb had to be shown on the entrance to the house. It was a visible representation of how God himself had invisibly stretched himself over the front door of that home or passed over the front door. God himself was taking the judgment upon himself In New Testament terminology, we would say that the Israelites were saved by the blood of the lamb. And the Passover in Egypt was a a picture foreshadowing of how humanity can be set free from our sins by the blood of the true lamb of God, Jesus, the son of God. And so Pharaoh then let the Israelites go. They left Egypt with their heads high. They were no longer slaves. They were free from oppression and free to leave. They were no longer an oppressed and enslaved people. The oppressive regime of Pharaoh seemed to have no hold over them. I suppose modern historians uh, who look at those events in history uh, would herald this as a revolution. Our world applauds those times in history when people have risen up against their oppressive rulers and have thrown off the shackles of slavery and oppression. Revolutions like that are celebrated for bringing freedom to oppressed people. Now, to give you an idea of this, uh, I was reading recently about the French Revolution, which began in 1789, and was very popular here in Northern Ireland. The people of France had suffered oppression at the hands of the aristocracy and the established church in France. But in 1789, the people rose up against their oppressors. In one iconic moment on the 14th of July, the Bastille prison was stormed by a crowd of revolutionaries. And that event is celebrated in France to this day. Gradually, the power of the ruling class was broken and power was placed into the hands of the people. Now, when that happened, when the people freed themselves from the oppressive power of the ruling class, did the people live happily ever after? Did they enjoy their newfound liberty? Far from it. The traditional ruling class was replaced by a more fanatical form of popular leadership The envy which had been latent in the hearts of the oppressed people spilled out onto the streets. There were old scores to be settled. The mobs which roamed Paris displayed a malice and a lust for power which matched the previous regime and even exceeded it. And far from bringing real freedom, France ended up experiencing the reign of terror. And many of the original leaders of the revolution were themselves executed by the guillotine. That is what frequently happens in revolutions. The ideals of freedom are quickly forgotten. Years of resentment causes a release of pent-up bitterness, jealousy, envy, malice, and a longing to get the hands on power and it releases a thirst for power which quickly destroys the lofty ideals which uh, originally inspired people to challenge the oppressive ruler, rules that they had endured in the first place. Now, bear that analogy in mind as we visualize the Israelites marching out of Egypt under their leader, Moses. People here were tasting freedom for the first time after generations of oppression. They were forming a new nation. They were a people who had seen their oppressors, uh, the hold of their oppressors broken, and now they were free. They had the chance to make a fresh start, and it had all the hallmarks of a revolution. But remember that all our experience of revolutions down through history warns us that this was actually a very dangerous moment in the history of the Israelites. There was a danger of mob rule, a danger that suppressed selfish ambition would result in Moses himself being overthrown as their leader, as other people saw their chance to grab power. There was a danger that the people would introduce their own regime, which would result in an oppression even greater than they had known in Egypt. Humanly speaking, that was almost inevitable. So how was God going to prevent this happening? That's what we will see in our unusual passage this evening. The details of these annual celebrations of their release from oppression might have seemed a bit technical and a bit irrelevant. But they were really important in saving the people from destroying the very freedom they had so longed for. Now, the implications for us are also very important. Remember that this whole historical event of the Passover was only a visual aid. It did happen, but it was still a visual aid. And the historical events have been recorded to explain to us what actually happened when Christ died on the cross to set us free from our sins. His death as the Lamb of God was arranged by God to coincide precisely with the annual celebration of the Passover in Jerusalem. And through Christ's death, fulfilling the Passover, a person can be set free, free from their sins, free from the guilt and the fear of punishment which often oppresses people, and free from the fear of death which causes people uh, to, to lose hope in life. The, the Bible describes this process of being liberated as being redeemed. Christ's death is like the foundation of a new freedom from the oppression of sin and guilt and fear. It is like the beginning of a revolution in our lives. It is all the hope for uh, all that has been hoped for in a revolution. But it also has all the dangers of the abuse of our newfound freedom. So let's pay careful attention to how God carefully and subtly guides his people through this dangerous phase in their new life. Let's see the simple action that God takes to make his revolution and their liberty sustainable and to prevent his newly released people from falling into the same trap as the people of Paris and France did, and as happened in so many human revolutions. So I want simply to highlight three carefully designed but simple ways in which God asked Israel to commemorate their freedom from Egypt. Three things he asked them to do. First. They had to every year reenact the Passover meal. To take a lamb and to kill it, to sit round it with their family, and to remember that original Passover night. The second thing he asked them to do is to celebrate what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's bread made without yeast. And thirdly, we read how God asked them to redeem their firstborn sons. As we'll see, The firstborn of every family belonged to God, and people could buy buy their firstborn son back from God. So also in each of these three cases, we'll also look at how the New Testament explicitly uh, uh, draws parallels for Christians today. So first of all, then, the reenacting of the Passover meal. We read those words, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. And every year, the Israelites celebrated the Passover, at least they were supposed to, uh, by a sort of reenactment of that very first Passover meal. The celebration reminded them of how they had been redeemed. They had a formal meal where they were gathered around a lamb that had been slain. And first and foremost, the ceremony reminded them that they had not been delivered by their own rising up against the power of Egypt. They were not delivered by their own military force or by a clever uh, political campaign of civil disobedience. They had to remember how they had been powerless in the grip of Pharaoh. They were powerless to break free from Egypt. And they had to remember that it was God who had come down from heaven. They remembered that the lamb that they sacrificed was a picture of how it was God who had protected them from the destroying angel by taking the judgment upon himself. Every year they had to remember that it was God who had set them free and not themselves. Now, in the New Testament, there is only one ceremony of remembrance which is repeated regularly. And that is what we call the Lord's Supper. It's sometimes called communion or the breaking of bread. It's a simple celebration, which the Lord explicitly asked all Christians to take part in. The Lord Jesus himself set the pattern of meeting with his disciples on the first day of each week after his resurrection. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 describes the basic pattern of this simple remembrance ceremony. So the Christian ceremony of remembering the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the Lord's sacrifice for us. Paul draws the parallel again in Corinthians when he says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So the Lord's Supper is like the New Testament equivalent of the Passover meal. And it involves us sharing two symbols. First. There's a loaf of bread, which, is, uh, which represents the body of the Lord Jesus, which he gave for us. And as we did this morning, as we do 52 uh, weeks every year, and in our church we've been doing that for over 150 years without fail, uh, each of us takes a small piece of bread and eats it. It's a way of remembering that Christ became human, took on human flesh, and gave himself for each of us personally. And the second symbol is a cup containing wine or some other type of drink, and it reminds us how Christ shed his blood to pay the price for our redemption. So in this simple ceremony, we remember at the start of each new week that we did not earn our own salvation by our good deeds, by our efforts, by being good people, Most religions urge people to try to earn forgiveness, to earn acceptance by God by living a good life. But each week here on a Sunday morning, we remind ourselves that that is impossible. We remember that it required the Son of God to come into this world to be our Passover lamb. He took the judgment which should have fallen upon us. And because of that, We have been set free from guilt, set free from fear of punishment, those factors which often leave people feeling oppressed. So that's the first thing that Israel had to remember. Let's return now to chapter 13 and look at the second ceremony which God required Israel to celebrate. And that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This would seem very strange to us but in parallel with the Passover feast, there was another ceremony which Israel had to carry out every year. They had to go through their house and hunt down any trace of leaven or yeast, uh, which is uh, our name for the same substance. If they find any in their house, they had to get rid of it. Any bread that they ate at that time had to be made without yeast. Now unleavened bread I have to say is not so pleasant as the bread that we normally eat because the bread did not rise. It was very solid and was very hard on the teeth. So what did this war against leaven or against yeast represent? Why did they have to hunt down every bit that they could find and get rid of it? What message did this uh, ceremony convey to the Israelites? Why was yeast something that had to be hunted down and expelled? Well, it's obviously this yeast, it's it's obviously a picture of something pretty evil. And think what yeast does. Now, I'm not an expert in this field, but some of you are and have used it. But yeast on its own is dormant and passive. But in the right circumstances, I think particularly if you give it sugar and apply heat, it comes alive and it grows, and if it has been worked through a piece of dough, the dough then expands as the bread is baked and the loaf is puffed up. The loaf of bread looks much more substantial and more impressive than it really is. And in remembering the Passover, one of the things God wanted to remind the Israelites was not to get puffed up artificially. They were not to be fooled by their outward image. They were not to be fooled by their apparent success, which really could only be attributed to God. They should not imagine that they were more impressive than they actually were. They had to taste what they were really like on the inside. So here's how Paul, in, again in Corinthians, applies exactly this same lesson. This is 1 Corinthians chapter five verses six to eight. He says, your boasting is not good. Notice that, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice And wickedness notice that with malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth now if you know the context of this part of corinthians the corinthians were proud of their liberty they had just written to paul saying everything is permissible we are not under law they were proud of their freedom to do whatever they wanted And they thought because their sins were forgiven they could live whatever way they wanted. They felt superior to those who were more careful about their lifestyle and who lived a moral and disciplined more disciplined life. They had become puffed up like bread made with yeast and so Paul says your boasting is not good get rid of the yeast. So Paul spells out one of the dangers for Christians who thinks that freedom means We can live whatever way we want. God wanted to make it clear to Israel that that is not the journey he had called them to when they left Egypt. It is not the life Christians are called to when we are redeemed by Christ. Just remember the warnings from history about revolutions. When people are released from their oppressors, there remains the problem of what they're like on the inside. That has not changed. All their pent-up desires, their envy, and their ambition still remains. And if that is not dealt with, the people will end up being dominated by an even greater tyranny. They will fight each other. They'll seek to exercise power over each other and even destroy one another, all in the name of freedom. A real sustainable revolution requires a change in inner attitudes to one another. And that is what God's directions about unleavened bread were all about. Hunting down yeast was like hunting down wrong attitudes in our hearts. And you'll notice in our reading that uh, Paul mentions two particular wrong attitudes. We've already talked about boasting, being proud of our freedom to live free from any constraints or boundaries. And living without moral boundaries destroys not only our lives, but the lives of other people too. God wants us to remember that each week. And secondly, Paul says that yeast is a picture of those attitudes of malice and wickedness. Malice among Christians, you say? Surely that is not possible. Sadly, it's all too common. Let me give you one example from a country far away from here. Uh, where Christians were persecuted and had to meet in secret. In one particular city, I know there was one underground church which was raided by the police. The leaders of the church were arrested and beaten quite brutally by the police. Later, the police told these leaders that their informant was the pastor of a nearby church who was jealous of the church that had been raided and wanted to take his competition out. So he informed the police on the other church and had it uh, destroyed. It was pure envy and malice. Now, you may be shocked by that, but that in, perhaps in seed form is all too common in Christian circles. Christian churches have seen envy and jealousy and selfish ambition. It drives Christians to tell lies about fellow Christians, to pass on gossip, and to enhance it in ways that could destroy someone's reputation. It may not seem all that evil at the time, but these attitudes are like yeast. They grow and work their way through the whole church if they're not dealt with. And Paul says we need to hunt down things like that in our own hearts and get rid of them. That's why in the Lord's directions for the Lord's Supper, the Lord says, let a man examine himself. When we come to remember the Lord, we should hunt down our hearts for wrong attitudes, for a feeling that we can live free from any moral boundaries. We should hunt our own motives and look honestly to see if there's even a hint of jealousy or envy in us. It's easy to spot it in others or to think that we have but with the Lord's help, we should examine our own hearts and motives honestly. And finally, the third thing that they had to remember, that God asked them to remember, had to do with buying back their firstborn sons. This again as connected to remembering the implications of the Passover. What they had to do was every firstborn animal, every firstborn son in a family, belonged to God. Why was that? Well, the reason is obvious, but it's very significant. Because being redeemed is not the same as simply being liberated and let go. Being redeemed means someone buys you. Someone has paid a price for you. They have bought you. And God bought Israel out of Egypt. He paid the price. And because of that, he had a claim of ownership over them. When the destroying angel came to destroy the firstborn son of every Israelite family, God himself paid the price on behalf of the firstborn son. So in that sense, God bought the firstborn son of every Israelite family. He could rightfully claim ownership over every firstborn Israelite son. And to acknowledge that ownership God said that a family had to buy back their son from God. God owned their firstborn, so the family had to buy from God their firstborn son in Israel. Now, Paul applies exactly that same principle when it comes to how how we need to live as Christians. This is what he says in chapter six from verses 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Notice this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Again, in the context of saying that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, Paul says... You have been redeemed. You have been bought by God. You do not, uh, you, you are not your own. You belong to God. He bought you at a price. Therefore, everything about us, including our bodies, belongs to God. If we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, then Christ has bought us. He owns us, our body is his body. He bought our bodies so that it would be a temple for the Holy Spirit to live in. Our bodies belong to the Lord. Paul warns us about the seriousness in this context of sexual sin. Because Christians who indulge in sexual sin are damaging God's temple, damaging God's property. We should want to make our bodies a place where God is completely at home. So with those three ways of three things that we must remember about the implications of being redeemed. And in particular, the New Testament fulfillment of them. These were given by God so that our liberty, our freedom from sin, freedom in Israel's case from Egypt did not result in them developing their own tyranny because of the the sin that was still in their hearts and their attitudes their pride, and their malice. If we put this into practice, then the revolution which Christ has brought about in setting us free from the oppression of sin and death, that revolution will not be turned into an other tyranny the way so many religions, including Christian religions, have done. It will bring us into true freedom. But if we don't, If we don't think through these things week by week, remembering uh, that we did not save ourselves, remembering to hunt down every false and sinful attitude in our hearts by examining ourselves, and remembering that we are not our own, we were bought with a price. If we don't remember those, we run the risk of ending being dominated by pride, by jealousy, and other bad attitudes. And we'll lose not only our own liberty, but we can destroy the freedom of others too. Let's just uh, pray as we, before I hand back to Richard. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your strategy in delivering people from oppression. We've seen that the oppression is not merely external, but we have within us the potential to destroy that liberty and not to live in the good of it. So Father, we pray that those of us who are Christians would constantly remember through what you have asked us to do week by week, uh, that we would constantly remember the basis of our redemption and the implications of that for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.